thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and we're now in the trumpets, chapter 8, verse 7 through 12. What we've done last time is spend our uh, lecture understanding the origins of the background of the trumpets and the relationship between these woes that we're going to see, the trumpets and the plagues of Egypt. We took... A sort of a, a wide brush in understanding the relationship between these trumpets and Egypt, the Feast of Trumpets, and the ways trumpets were used throughout the Old Testament and as well as the New Testament. So all that was background work that we've done last week in order to be able to move faster through those trumpets. Let me read to you the text one more time, beginning with verse 7 in chapter 8. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, which fell on the earth. And a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the fountains of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the water because it was made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light was darkened. A third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Once more, let's remind ourselves that we should shy from a literalist interpretation of the text, because that would lead us into absurdity. We have to realize that those are images, metaphors, and symbols used to represent a different reality than what is depicted here in the text. With that in mind, we said that this is an act of decreation. Just as in the Genesis, we saw the stars, the moons, the suns being created, then the waters being created on earth, then the trees and the plants, etc. This time around, it's a reversal process. These things are being destroyed. 
thereby indicating that there is an age that is coming to an end. It isn't the end of the world. It is the end of the old age, preparing for the new age. We've also said that the purpose of this destructive work is, number one, to punish the unbelievers, and number two, to give them still an occasion to repent. This is not the complete wrath of God. That is upcoming with the bowls, the bowls of wrath. Right now, God is punishing the unbelievers, preparing them for the final punishment, but yet giving them a chance to repent. Once we've covered all the trumpets, we're going to go back and draw a parallel between the trumpets and the seals. It will, it will be a good exercise for us to see how they link together. Seals were warnings, trumpets are actual punishment. We've noted the correspondence between trumpets and plagues and the plagues of Egypt. I'll remind you that the first trumpet, which deals with the destruction of the earth, the trees, and the green grass, correspond to the plagues that you will find in Exodus chapter 9, verse 22 through 25. That the second trumpet dealing with the sea correspond to what you find in Exodus chapter 7, verse 20 through 25. The third trumpet dealing with the um, the great star that is falling from heaven and the water becoming warm wood corresponds to Exodus 10, verse 21 through 23. And the fourth trumpet dealing with the sun, the moons, and the stars being struck correspond to what you find in Exodus 10, verse 12 through 15. So just as the events of Exodus had for their purpose to, number one, manifest the glory of God, and number two, punish Pharaoh and those Egyptians who did not want to repent, so are those trumpets organized to punish the, uh, the world and help some to repent. And the last point that we made last time, which is good for us to remember, is that the correspondence between the trumpets and Jericho, where we see the Jews, the Israelites, fighting against Jericho in a liturgical way, going around the city six, six, six times, one time every day, blowing the trumpets. And on the seventh day, they blow the trumpets seven times, and Jericho falls, and Jericho fell. Well, likewise, the sixth trumpet we're going to see right now prepare for the seventh. All right? With all this in mind, let's then uh, move on to the first trumpet. The first trumpet is patterned, as I said, after the Egyptian plague of hail and fire in Exodus chapter 9, verse 23 through 25. Then Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and shattered every tree of the field we see how this physical event that took place in Exodus is now used by John 
to express the reality behind the curses that God is sending down on earth. The end result of this particular plague in Egypt was the destruction of trees and plants and grass, leading, therefore, preparing for the famine. If you recall, if you recall from the four horses of the, of the seals, one of them de- dealt with famine. Well, that's what we're seeing right now. That warning is turning into reality. So behind the notion of fire coming down mixed with blood and hail, we have an action taken by God to strike the natural resources that allow the world to live on. The one-third indicates partial, uh, a partial woe. That's all what one-third means. Let's not take it more than that. It's not 0.33333 at infinity. It simply means partially. All right? Now, if you look at the same account that I just read to you in the book of Wisdom, chapter 16, we read that for the ungodly, refusing to know thee, were scourged by the strength of thy arm, pursued by unusual rains and hail and relentless storms, and utterly consumed by fire. And in verse 19 of this chapter, we read, And at another time, even in the midst of water, the flame burned more intensely than fire to destroy the crops of the unrighteous land. Wisdom, the book of wisdom, is meditating on the plagues and interpreting them, understanding their import, what's behind them. And what is behind them is effectively a scourge to the ungodly who refuse to know thee. Not who do not know thee, who refuse to know thee. And that is kind of important for us in our own time. How do we refuse to know the Lord? The first way where we refuse to know the Lord is where we do not acknowledge Him or His action in the world. When we divorce all the events that happen today in our own time from the Lord. So if the Lord is out there somewhere very far away and He has nothing to do with what's going on here. We therefore refusing to acknowledge His glory, His authority, His Lordship on the world. As a result... The Lord sends our ways these scourges. In Revelation, the difference between what we read about the plagues and Revelation is that Revelation is emphasizing the role of the blood. We've seen last time that that blood is related to the martyrs that are under the altar from the fifth seal. The blood of the martyrs is what is provoking these curses. So, that should help us and should inspire us to really think carefully when someone does us wrong. Especially if that person is an unbeliever. When an unbeliever does us a wrong, an injustice, you, you, logically speaking, you should feel pity towards him or pity for him because he really doesn't know what's going to hit him. That is, unless he repents, Unless he changes ways and opens himself up to the Lord, that's what's going to hit him. Nothing less than that. Nothing short of that. Why? Not because we're such great people, but because God's glory doesn't change. 
And since God's glory doesn't change, God's glory demands the same response. So even on smaller scales, on personal scales, when someone does us wrong, we ought to think, Lord, forgive him because he doesn't know what is going to hit him. He doesn't know that he's digging a hole. For when he is attacking us, he's not attacking us, he's attacking the one who sent us, the one to whom we belong. And the Lord said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will requite those who persecute you. Now, we can flip the table around and think about when we, when we perform an unjust act. And I'm not talking here about, um, you know, I'm not talking necessarily about something that is fundamentally evil or we perceive as evil. I'm talking about small things. It's those small things that get us. I'll give you some examples. You, you got a movie through Netflix or Blockbuster, and you watched the movie and you liked it a lot, so you make a copy. You don't even think about it. You just make a copy. Who are you injuring? Who did you just injure? You're not dealing with Netflix or Blockbuster. You're dealing with the Lord. It's tax time. And you decide, you know what? I'm not going to declare those things. They're not necessary for me to declare them. I'm going to just keep them for myself. Who did you just rob? What are you doing? You're holding a shovel in your hand and you're digging a hole. Now granted, this hole may not lead you to hell, but do you really want to spend another 200, 300 years in purgatory? For $3,000, is it worth it? When I say that we do not recognize the Lord, and I'm talking about the world out there not recognizing the Lord in a big way, we need to understand that we, as Catholics, and those who really love the Lord, and try to live and strive to follow Him, we also have this tendency of not recognizing Him in the small things. And that is why, if you were to read the writings of St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Therese of the Child Jesus, and if you understood what she's saying, you'd realize that she basically pulled that rug from under your feet. She's saying you have no excuse because those little things will make you a saint. You have no excuse to ignore them. That is, on the moral level, the import from this text. That's why it's so powerful and so important for us. Because even on the moral sense, the sense that applies to me today, how the Lord through Scripture is talking to me, the book of Revelation applies. Let's forget the whole world. Because at the end of the day, you know what? When you die, you die alone. There's no such thing as a communion of the dead. Death is a solitary event. You're alone. And the question is, how have you prepared for that moment? How have have I prepared for that moment? And as soon as you start thinking seriously about this question, it pervades your entire life. Down to the small little things we do. Your, your, your wife is in bed. You're tired. 
you just want to lay down. You've brushed your teeth. You've flossed. You put yourself in PJs. You pull the cover. You lay down. Your head hits the pillow. And she says, honey, can you get me a glass of water? It's not a sin if you said, I'm too tired. I'm not going to get you one. You're with me? You didn't commit a sin. Because notice, so far I've only talked about the negative stuff. Now, we're going to rev it up. Because that negative stuff, not doing the negative stuff, is just the bare bones. Now let's talk about the stuff that really matters, charity. If on that spot, right there, when your, your irritation might be bubbling up to the surface, you're tired. Um, and you've been up all, you know, for, for a very long time doing who knows what, maybe watching sports, you know. Very important to go to watch sport before you go to bed. And you're about to sleep, and then she asks you for a glass of water. And all that, all this fall, fallen nature comes to the surface. Now, if you're not training yourself, if right there and then you cannot see in the person of your wife, Christ on the cross, asking for a glass of water, I will tell you that going through the experience of death is going to be very hard. If, you've not, if you're not training yourself to see in every person Christ, and, and Christ crucified, you're not growing in charity. And the book of Revelation can help us, can remind us of the reality of the throne of God. So I know that most of the time we're focused, we're outwardly focused. We look at the book of Revelation and we focus on the big picture. Stars falling and exploding and black holes and all that stuff. What does it matter on a personal level? We're going to die one way or the other, aren't we? Whether it's from a huge ball of explosives or from cancer. We're going to die. What does it matter? So let... We need, we need, we need the book to. We need the book of Revelation to help us focus on ourselves, not on, you know, China attacking Israel and that sort of stuff. That's why Revelation emphasizes the role of blood. The blood of the martyrs is effectively the gas that is put into the covenantal engine that makes the world run. Get it? That's why the world can never win. There's no way. I mean, it's a lose-lose situation for the world. Because either the world converts, in which case the world ceases to be the world, becomes the church, and therefore the world loses. And if the world does not convert, the world end up persecuting the faithful and spilling their blood, which is the gas used in the covenantal engine that brings forth curses on the world that either destroys it or converts it. The world cannot win. Either way. And we have to be, we need to understand this spiritually because it is the foundation of our peace and our hope and the energy that you find in the Catholic Church to be always a church missionary converting the world because the church knows the truth. Now, fire in this, in, this first, um, in this first 
plague should not be interpreted literally or literalistically. I don't think so. Why? Because earlier in the book, we've seen what? Recall the seven spirits that stand before God, right? Which are represented as what? As what? Pardon? Lampstands. Burning lampstands. Right? So this image of a lampstand with fire represents a spirit. That's one reason. The second reason why we should not interpret fire literally is because uh, Jesus himself, in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 12, verse 49, said that he has come to cast fire upon the earth and would that it were already kindled. Would that it were already kindled. That's from Luke 12, 49. And he added, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I constrained until it is accomplished? So you see that the fire that he's speaking about is not physical. Christ did not come on earth to burn it with physical fire. So that fire coming down from heaven is not, at least not literally on the first sense, a physical fire. Eschatologically, at the end of the world, or even anagogically, as it applies to the life of the church throughout history? Could it be that in certain places, fire erupts and burns physically? Absolutely. You bet. But that is not the first and foremost meaning. The first and foremost meaning is spiritual. The fire that is being kindled, that is coming down from heaven, in the form of a curse, is effectively the fire of the Holy Spirit. You see, that is very important for us to understand how the plagues, the curses of the covenant, affect the believers and the non-believers. If you really think about it, blessings and curses tend to be one and the same action from God. They're not separate actions. It's the way that are received that makes all the difference. So that fire coming down from heaven is, is going to strengthen the believer, is going to comfort them, is going to fill them with hope. Whereas the unbeliever, the unbeliever, the unbelievers are going to be filled with dread. They're going to be driven to despair on account of their unbelief. The fire mixed with blood is a representation, a figurative representation of the action of the martyrs and the Holy Spirit affecting the physical reality of the world. Bringing about famine. The end result is famine. But we should not expect sort of a physical manifestation of you know fire and blood and hail all raining down from heaven on us. At least not today. When the end of the world comes, who knows? That could turn out to be all physically manifested. But until then, we should see God's action throughout history represented here under fire and blood. But we should learn to read the signs of the time and see God's action in all that is going out on right now in this country and elsewhere in the world. What is important here is that the food supplies are affected because of the trees and the grass and the earth being partially burned. 
In Exodus chapter 9 verse 25, which you've already read, and in 31-32 we have, The flax and barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they are late in coming up. So in Exodus, flax and barley were ruined on account of that plague of hail and fire that came down. But wheat was not ruined. Recall from the seals, recall from the seals that in the third seal, wheat and barley are explicitly mentioned as becoming scarce. So that's a pointer to that particular plague in Exodus. The gist of it all is that the action of God is causing famine. Partial famine, not complete. All right? In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 through 9, we read, In the whole land, says the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. That quotation from Zechariah makes us understand the thirds better. Two thirds, a majority are going to perish. One third doesn't perish, but they're not the sealed. They're put in fire. What does that mean? They're going to be tested. And if they call on God's name, they're going to be saved. That's what we see here. Unfortunately, we will read later that John says that those who survived did not repent. The reason why he says that is not to showcase how hard we are, but rather to showcase God's equitable justice. God is really just and patient, and merciful. Even though he foreknew that they would not repent, he still gave them the occasion to repent. For none shall say, God is unjust. The intention, therefore, of that first trumpet is for judgment and repentance through famine by means of the covenantal woes triggered through the liturgy. So how this whole, this, this whole thing works those persecuted Christians that look so weak, you remember from the letters, they're persecuted both by the Jewish authority of the temple and the Roman power, which are much greater and much more powerful than they are, or at least seemingly so. Furthermore, inside those churches, we have strife, we have heresy. We have those who are teaching, who are presenting a false teaching. There are those who are actually falling into uh, into lust. So if you look at the church, the panorama is bleak from within and from without. But that, my friends, is a material view of the church. That's not a sacramental view. Because if you now can take one step up, not back, but up, look at it from the throne, just as John was invited to do, and see it from above, your view changes completely. Those people who are persecuted, those people shedding their blood, those people who are, being, who are suffering, are actually 
interceding on behalf of the church in heaven and causing God to act to the liturgy to preserve, protect, and cleanse the church and punish the world. What happened back then is happening today. No difference. The second trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea. Now, mountain from the, from the Old Testament. I'm hoping that by now your mind is starting to sort of go in the right direction. You're starting to get trained and not thinking in terms of material images of some sort of a cone-shaped or pyramid-like mountain being dropped from the sea. That would be a good exercise for you to kind of move away. As soon as you hear hear those images, move away from the knee-jerk reaction of kind of thinking sort of, you know, Star Trek way. Some huge thing coming from outer space, coming through the atmosphere, burning up, and okay, stop. This is liturgy, not science fiction. All right? As soon as you start training yourself this way, you will avoid 80% of the difficulties that are presumed to be in the book. There are some intrinsic difficulties, I'll grant you that. But 80% of our difficulties have nothing to do with revelation. It's got to do with our warped, materialistic, scientific grid that we impose on this book. So think mountain in the Old Testament. All right? Let's do that interactively. Because i got to tell you, when I'm looking at you right now, the impression I'm getting is, boy, are they bored. They're bored out of their wits. So let's do it a little bit more interactively here. Mountain, Old Testament. Anybody has suggestions? Ah, meaning place of God. Okay. Pardon? Sacrifices were done on mountains, yes. Any other suggestion? Mountain of Transfiguration. Mount of Transfiguration, yes. Any other mountain that you can think of? Pardon? Okay, try not to be a Catholic when you talk. Because Catholics mumble when they talk. Be a little bit more Protestant. Shout it out so I can hear you. I'm old, I'm getting deaf. Mount Sinai, yes, absolutely. The mountain. Pardon? The throne of God, yes. Those are the appropriate images that should trigger in your mind when you hear mountain. Not a meteor falling from outer space. Do you understand our problem? That's our problem, right there. St. Ephraim, in his studies on Genesis, represents Genesis as a mountain. from which the four rivers are flowing to nourish the world. He looked at it as a mountain. The idea of a mountain is associated always with the throne of God. Right? Likewise, a mountain is associated then with what? Something that is there, that is stable. Kingdoms. Kingdoms are often depicted as a mountain. So, when a mountain is thrown into the sea, 
What does that suggest? What is, it, what is the image trying to tell you? A kingdom is about to be overthrown. That's what's going on. All right? A kingdom is overthrown. Now notice the, the gradation. We started with famine. Now we have political upheaval. All right? It is still partial. It's one-third. One-third of the sea, one-third of the, fi- of the creatures in the sea, and one-third of the ship. So again, this is intensifying the famine. Because another aspect is now being impacted. We had the, the, the land, now we have the sea. Now, if you followed any political upheaval anywhere, you kind of understand it logically. That's what's going on right now. So this is not about some piece of real estate being pulled out on boosters and thrown in the sea, okay? This is about a liturgical, Old Testament-based significance of a mountain. Now we're going to be a little bit more specific. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 15 through 24... We have the background. I'm sorry, no. Back up. This is the third trumpet. My eyes went the wrong place. I'm still on the second. So the likeness of a mountain is a metaphor for a kingdom. As in Revelation chapter 14 verse 1, Revelation chapter 17 verse 9, and Revelation chapter 21 verse 10. In all these instances, the, the mountain represents a kingdom. Fire, as we have seen, is an image of judgment. So the burning mountain connotes an evil kingdom being overthrown. And in, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 21, we'll read that a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. And the angel immediately interprets the symbolism. So the angel took a huge stone like a millstone and threw the stone into the sea. Here we have a mountain being thrown into the sea. But in 18, the angel interprets the symbolism of his action and tells us that thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Alright? So the angel doesn't look at the millstone as some sort of, um, you know, saucer being shot to earth from heaven. He looks at it as a symbol of an evil city. That is thrown into the sea. Likewise, a mountain burning with fire, thrown into the sea, is a kingdom being toppled. So the second trumpet continues the woes introduced by the first against the sea, which was not harmed by the first trumpet. Famine is heightened because of the disruption in maritime activities. Now, we can take that one step further. The sea, as you know, is a symbol of unbelievers. So when that mountain is thrown into the sea, St. John does not say, and read carefully your translation, does not say a third of the fish died. He says a third of the creatures of the sea. All right. The intent, therefore, here is, is not to be um, biologically correct. Because, you know, an octopus may not be a fish, right? It's not, that's not what is in mind, I, I think. What is in mind, rather, is 
the representation of the sea as the Gentile kingdom. And the creatures that live in the sea are the unbelievers. That would apply because when you are created as a human being, you are created on the sixth day with the animals. But you're created for the seventh day, the day of rest. If you refuse the seventh day, meaning if you refuse the covenant, if you refuse God, you stay, you revert back to the sixth day, the day of the creatures. And you're more like a creature than you are like a man. In Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 25, the prophet refers to Babylon's judgment thus, I am against you, O destroying mountain, and I will make you a burned out mountain. It is highly likely that this may be the reference that is playing behind this particular text. That a destroying mountain, a destroying kingdom, an evil kingdom is now being overthrown. The same thing is seen in Ezekiel chapter 29 verse 3 through 5. In Ezekiel, the prophet predicts judgment on a later pharaoh through another plague on fish. And this pharaoh is described as a great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers and that he will be caught. His people are called the fish of your Nile who will cling to you, meaning pharaohs, to your scales. That, you know, strengthened this idea that what St. John is describing here is not only creatures of the fish being hit and maritime commerce being disrupted, but really the... Gentile nations being affected by this woe. We also know that our Lord used fish figuratively to represent the believers who will enter the kingdom. He told Simon and Andrew, come after me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? That is found in Matthew chapter 4 verse 19. Now one interesting question. Can we infer which mountain is being described here. Let me see if you know your gospel well. Which mountain do you think is being inferred here? Is it any old mountain? Zion? Zion. No, it is actually not Zion. But you're close. No. No. Yeah, Golgotha. Golgotha. No. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. How do we know that? Matthew chapter 17 verse 20. He said to them, they asked him, you know, why can't we do something? And he said, because of your, because of your little faith. Amen, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you remember that now? See, that's the problem. Because we don't train ourselves by studying Scripture daily, the way early Christians did and the way the Jews did, and the way Protestants do today. We don't have the synapses connecting in our brain quickly enough. That's our problem. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. Right now, is Jesus saying, move from here to there about a mountain. Right? But which mountain? We go to Matthew 
chapter 21, verse 21 and 22. There he is a lot more specific. Jesus said to them in reply, Amen, I say to you, if you have faith and do not waver, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, he didn't say to a mountain, this mountain, he's pointing at a mountain. Where is he when he cursed the fig tree? Right outside of Jerusalem. If you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea. Alright? Be lifted up and thrown into the sea. Whatever you ask for in prayer, with faith, you will receive. It wasn't about, oh wow, we're going to be moving hills. You know, we're going to do 2,000 years what ago, what it takes tractors to do today. Our materialistic view paralyzes us in a sense and, and, and blinds us to the truth of the, the deeper truth of the text. This was not about physically lifting up the mountain and throwing it into the sea. It was about two things. Number one, Jerusalem is the seat of opposition. It is the evil, it has become the evil kingdom. It's the new Babylon. Joined with Rome. Therefore, when Christ says, you say that this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea, right after he had cursed the fig tree, what is the fig tree a symbol of? Israel. Israel is called a fig tree. And he goes to the fig tree and it has no fruits. And it's outside of season. That's the weird thing. It wasn't a season for figs. So he looks at it and he says, Ah, you have no fruits on you. Be cursed. And immediately it withered. What did he just do symbolically? He did what he was going to do physically in 70 AD. That's what he just did. You get it? He just did that and he says, Tell this mountain, throw yourself into the sea. What does that mean? Be done with you. That's the first meaning. The second meaning? This mountain anagogically, is going to become the church. I'm going to take the church, I'm going to throw it into the sea, and it will be what? What is the image being used here? It is the image of the net. Get it? I'm throwing it into the sea to do what? I'm going to make you fishers of men. You see the multiple layers in our Lord saying, but it takes what? It takes knowledge of Scripture and constant meditation on the Word of God and prayer to see this. Otherwise, Jesus sounds like a magician. You know, abracadabra, the tree is dry. Whoa. Next, he's going to take a mountain, physically throw it in the sea. Oh, that's impressive. Beat Superman. No, no, he beats Spider-Man. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. He just deals with the heavyweights. Is that related to Revelation? <laughs> I wonder. So that's the gist of the second trumpet. It's this evil kingdom that is effectively being destroyed. Partially right now. Actually it is being destroyed and the, it's causing partial upheaval and furthering that famine. 
that we talked about. Let's see if this theme is continued on the third trumpet. Let me remind you one more time of the text, the third trumpet. If I can find the, the, my... The third trumpet, verse 10. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the, mount, and on the fountains of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the water because it was made bitter. There again, you can immediately see that a literalistic interpretation makes absolutely no sense. Explain to me, how can you have a star that falls just on rivers and fountains? And skips, skips everything else. You see how absurd this is? If you try to really force the physical image. So then what do you have to do? We say, well actually he's really talking about the rivers and the fountains. But he means everything else in between. So you blanketed the whole place. That's why, you know, in certain interpretation, it's uh, this, this, this uh, star falling is a nuclear bomb. You know, something like that. Um, I mean, yeah, you, may, you make a great science fiction movie out of it. Well, maybe not great, but you can make a science fiction movie out of it. But as far as scriptural studies, I think it's dubious. Exodus chapter 7, verse 15 through 24. We have the background because rivers and springs of waters are affected, as in the case, are affected, as also in the case of Exodus 7, 7 19. In particular, in 7.19, when the Lord tells Moses, Say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds, and all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So what was the result of turning everything into blood? People could no longer drink. So now you move from famine to drought, great thirst, all right? That's what is behind the third trumpet. That's why it's different from the first two. It's now touching drinkable water. In Psalm 78, verse 44, we have the following. The Lord turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. And this time around, we have a great star burning like a torch that was thrown from heaven. What do stars represent? Angels. Angels. Stars represent angelic beings. We're going to see that in the battle between the dragon and Michael. But Stars represent angelic beings. So you now see the logic of the progression. First, we started with famine. Then we went to the political manifestation of that evil kingdom. Now we're going to the spiritual representation of the evil kingdom. The evil demon behind it. And it is being thrown down. So, effectively, the battle has already started. God is taking on the world. Not just materially, but spiritually. Which I might add, is often 
one dimension of our lives that we tend to constantly ignore. It's another area of necessary training for spiritual survival. And I've mentioned that a number of times. I said that when a thought comes to you, comes to me, we are not trained, we are not trained to ask ourselves this simple question. What is the origin of that thought? Where is it coming from? We assume and immediately accept it as being our own. Every thought that gets into our brain, we think is our own. We are the author of all those thoughts. We're... Yeah, I think you get my gist. I don't have to say anything more. Well, no, we're not. Not always. We need to ask ourselves, is this, this thought is mine. So oftentimes people also tend to confuse temptation with sins. It's a, it's a, it's a common thing. I've seen it many times. People go and confess temptations. Well, well, wait a minute. Why are you confessing a temptation? So they're saying the rosary, of course. They're trying to be pious and saying the rosary. That's when the devil comes full forth, force. And then he puts in their heads the worst images. You know, emotions of hate, lust, you name it. Whole movies rumble through. And these poor souls, pious and innocent, think, oh my, I'm a monster. And they go confess all that. Well, that's fine. You went to confession, it's great. But that was not a sin. If you did not give yourself to that temptation, you didn't say, oh wow, that's amazing. I wish I could do all that stuff. If your thought was, oh, man, what is this stuff? I don't want any of it. God, take it away. Well, you're resisting it. Don't worry about it. But if you don't train yourself, you're like a guy standing in front of an invisible enemy who holds you by the collar and slaps you left and right all the time, continuously, throughout your day. You don't know how to defend yourself because you don't think there's anybody attacking you. And you wonder at the end why you have a headache. The spiritual dimension is so important, and I think I, you've heard me say countless times that devotion to our guardian angel is essential, because he is going to be the one standing next to you, making you more and more aware of that dimension, in the appropriate way, because there are those who go overboard. Oh, wow, I found chewing gum on the ground. That's a sign from God. <laughs> no. That's a sign that Somebody dropped it. Right? I dreamt of a white horse. Something really positive is going to happen to me. No. You just dreamt of a white horse. Let's leave it at that. So there are these two extremes that must be avoided. We have to abide by our rationality, by, the, by a reasoned process, yet at the same time not ignore spirituality because we think it's irrational because we don't see it. That's what's irrational. Ignoring it is irrational. You understand? So again, the book of Revelation applied morally helps us see the multi-layer of that battle we're engaged in. And our problem is that we're not trained. We're not trained soldiers. We are not trained for spiritual combat. We don't train ourselves. We're like guys who want to join the Marines and we go sit home and watch movies and eat chips. And hope that that's going to prepare us to join the Marines. Or we want to become 
the greatest piano player and we go train our fingers by playing video games. Hoping that the day of the concert will do just fine. Or again, we want to apply for a job and then we go home and spend our time looking at ourselves in the mirror and reciting political discourse. (laughs) And patting ourselves on the back thinking, wow, how great we are. This is going to be, you know, I got the job. It's done. And there is delusion which we are wont to fall in because of our weakness. We imagine how things are going to happen and we think we got it because we're such great thinkers. And then there's reality. And this is what this, this is what it's all about at the end of the day. The world is deluded. The world thinks they got it. And they don't know what's going to hit them. And actually what it hits them, they still have no clue. They cannot interpret the signs of the time. If that doesn't cause pity in your heart, I don't know what will. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why you're here. And that's why God will call upon you if you've done your duty, if you studied, if you take that seriously, if you're praying, to use you to touch someone else. All right, where was I? Yeah, the stars falling from heaven. Let's go back to that. As I said, it is a uh, sign of angelic beings. In the Old Testament and post-biblical Judaism, uh, fire represents judgment, so that we see here a judgment on an angelic being. And this recalls again the, the words of the Lord in the Gospel of... What am I thinking of right now? St. Luke. I've only quoted this three times. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When the disciples came back rejoicing in what they were able to do. Lord, because of you, demons listen to us and we do this and that and the other. You know, we're we're wonderful people. And Jesus says, do not rejoice because you've done all these things. Rather rejoice because your names are written in the book of heaven. And behold, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's what's implied here. It's the fall of Satan. Now, what is heaven? Remember, we've said that last time. Heaven is not, in that sense, the abode of the Trinity. Heaven is the place on high where gods are supposed to live. It is therefore a place of authority. Let me put it for you in modern terms. I saw the Dow Jones tumble 1,000 points. Do you get it? (laughs) Now let me ask this question. How many of you have seen the Dow Jones actually tumble? Tumble? Have you ever seen it tumble? What tumbles? Your washer might tumble. Your dryer might tumble. Your kid might tumble down the stairs. All right? A stock indicator does not tumble. Yet we have no qualm understanding the image. And rightfully so. It tumbled. That's what's implied here. Satan didn't just catch fire and fall down. (laughs) Alright? It's an image indicating that the authority that the devil had on the world has been broken. Through what? 
not through Christ directly, immediately, but through the action of the disciples who are the church. You understand? As in Exodus, so it is here. People used to worship gods as the sources of rivers and streams. That, in, in Lebanon, for instance, I can think of one place called uh, uh, Fara. It's up in the mountains, and it's a huge cavern from which water flows. And that used to be a center of worship for the Phoenicians and the Greeks and the Romans, and you name it. And that's just one example. In the ancient times, sources of water, waters, the places where the water flew, flow, flowed, came out from the mountain, were always associated, not always, were often associated with the, the, the worship of gods. So when that star is falling and is affecting all the rivers and all the sources of water, what is being indicated here is that it's an attack on all those gods. Just as in the case of the Nile, the turning of the water into blood is effectively the slaying of the god of the Nile. All right? So there's also a spiritual battle that is going on here. And it happens because that high spirit is falling down. You see, notice how God punishes the world. When God punishes the world, God does not reveal the truth to the world. We think of it this way. I'm going to show you the truth, and then you're going to be very sorry. I'm going to show you. Why? Because I really want to show you that I was right, and you were wrong. God doesn't work this way. When God punishes the world, God actually takes the truth away. Because the truth will convert you. There's no worse punishment on God's part than when He allows the Catholic Church to be persecuted. That is the wrath of God on the world. Because when He allows the church to be persecuted, guess what happens? The church is withdrawn. Therefore, men do not have access to the truth. That is the worst punishment. In Isaiah chapter 24, verse 21, the Lord says that He will punish the hosts of heaven on high and the kings of earth on earth. So, He will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. The fact that the fall of the star follows the fall of the mountains seems to reinforce this approach we're taking right now where the kings of the earth are being punished and the hosts of heaven are also being punished all together in the same action. And by association, we can think that the judgment of Babylon is in view, and we will need to understand what, it, what is meant here by Babylon. We'll spend more time on Babylon later. So, what is also, what makes this more convincing is that if we consider Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15, where Isaiah laments Babylon, the king of Babylon. But this is what he says. How are you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you brought down to Sheol, to the depth of the pit. That text applies to the physical king, to the human king of Babylon, but also to the spirit behind it. Both of them are being brought down. Now the star is called Wormwood, and it turns water bitter. 
Have you heard of the association with Chernobyl and Wormwood? A lot has been made of that. The association between Chernobyl and war, war, Wormwood. No, absence is related to, to derived from Wormwood. Yes, there is a relationship. But um, essentially, Wormwood appears... <clears throat> yeah, the question is, is, is Wormwood absent? And I'm saying it's related to it uh, uh, chemically. The star is called Wormwood and it turns water bitter and many people died. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 15 and 23, 15, we see that in, in both cases the text affirms that God will feed Israel with Wormwood and give them poison water to drink. This judgment comes because Israel's religious leaders have spiritually polluted the nations with their idolatrous Baal worship. So the... What, what Jeremiah is saying is that it's not that God is going to make them drink physical wormwood. Again, move away from a physical reality. This is not about, it's not just about a question of making all the water become bitter. What is intended here is that God will, is using this image to say that He is going to pollute the, the souls of these people because of what they have done to themselves already. All right? It isn't just, it's not like he's going to turn all the rivers into bitter water and make all the sources of water bitter. What is indicated here be, as, as a metaphor is that he is going to effectively, uh, what is implied is that he's going to affect all their spirit. And this is what we get from this text. And in, again, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, 14, we read that there will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree. Grapes and, and the vine and the fig tree, both symbols of Israel. All right? The leaf will wither and what I have given them will pass away. The Lord has doomed us and has given us poison water to drink. All right? The poison water is the bitterness of their situation. Things have gotten so bitter. You understand? It's when things go really awry, when things are not pleasing anymore, the situation is so hard and harsh, we say, it's bitter. We speak of someone, right, facing his bitter end. That's what is meant here. Wormwood is a medicinal herb used to make a tea for helping pregnant women during pain of labor. A wine can also be made by macerating the, the herb. It is also available in powder form and as a tincture. The oil of the plant can be used as a cardiac stimulant to improve blood circulation. But pure wormwood is very poisonous. It's, a, it's an oil that you derive from the plant and is very poisonous. But with proper dosage, poses little or no danger. Wormwood is mostly a stomach medicine. Okay, so that, hence the bitterness associated with it. In Russian culture, for instance, the fact that the Artemisia species are commonly used in medicine and that bitter taste is associated with medicinal effects, this has caused wormwood to be seen as a symbol for bitter truth. So effectively, in Russian culture, you would give somebody wormwood, meaning you're giving him the bitter truth. You're telling him things as they are. All right? It's an example of how that Image is used to convey something that is bitter. 
And it's a bitter truth that must be accepted by deluded, often self-deluded person. In Jeremiah, wormwood is used metaphorically for the bitterness of suffering resulting from judgment. The metaphor was chosen to show that judgment was well suited to the crime, since the prophets figuratively polluted Israel with idolatry. God is pictured as polluting them with bad water, that is, with the bitterness of suffering. So, God is giving them the medicine that meets their their, um, pain. Now, uh, this metaphorical meaning of wormwood is found everywhere in the Old Testament. I'm just giving you the references very quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 17 and 18. And you have seen the detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe, whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So the one who turns away and follows those guys becomes a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3 to 4, For the lips of a loose woman, woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is, as, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Lamentation, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the burden of their songs all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with Wormwood. Bear with me. Bear with me. I'm I'm done in two minutes. Okay, go ahead, Evan. Do I have an accent? Okay, thanks. You know, these people with accent, I don't like them. I, I don't like people with accent. Yeah, wormwood, that thing. This is what, the third time you correct me on this? Yes, right? Thanks. Not you, not you in particular. No, 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 no. Thank you. I don't mind it at all. I don't mind it at all. So anyone listening to me, it's wormwood. Yeah, I get it from the French. I got the O from the French. Good. Excellent. Wormwood. Why is it an O beats me? But, you know, again, I don't claim to understand that. All right. Moving along. Lamentation chapter 3, verse 19. Remember my affliction and my bitterness, the wormwood and the gall. And Amos 5, 7. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. And in Amos 6, 12. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. So the judgment, therefore, may be about sources of water and river, but more broadly, it really is, it is about the pain and suffering, the bitter suffering that is going to be caused by those woes as they come down on people. And the reason is, again, number one, to glorify God. Number two, to punish the wicked. Number three, to give still a chance for some to repent. So by way of contrast, we may think of the spring of living water. Remember when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman? Samaritan woman, and he said, come to me, and I will give you ever-living water. Well, what did he mean by that? Did he really mean physical water? No. All right? 
So just a contrast to help you see how this is used metaphorically. So what we've seen right now is the first three trumpets. All three of them dealing with famine. All three of them dealing with political upheaval, both on a material and spiritual level. Next week, we'll continue this and we'll move into the fourth trumpet, which is going to conclude that first act. And then we're going to look at the next three trumpets, which are different in nature, because they're not physical, they're utterly spiritual, and therefore much worse. Any questions about what we've gone through tonight, other than the... uh, uh, any questions regarding accent? I'll take that later. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Zion is really the mount opposed to, to opposing Jerusalem. It, it is going to become the mount of the church. That's the difference. All right. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I say that that the religious leaders of Israel are the enemy or have acted as the enemy, I really mean during the time of Jesus. I do not mean throughout history. I do not mean that they are acting as the constant enemy of the church across the entire history. That We have other enemies to deal with. But that was back then because they were in power. Yes. Heaven, the question is, I said that heaven was not the abode of the Trinity. What, what, where, where is then the abode of the Trinity? What do we call that? Heaven is a, an overloaded word. It means multiple things. In this context, only in this context, when we were talking about the star falling from heaven, we do not mean the abode of the Trinity. We mean a high place, a place of authority. That's all. But in other places, heaven really refers to the abode of the Trinity. So this needs to be taken within this context and only within this context of the star falling from heaven. Good question. Yes. The question is, when Jesus talks about Israel being his enemy, it is not Israel, but it is the unbelief. You see, the problem, though, is that unbelief is an abstract concept. You don't have unbelief as an enemy. You have people who are opposing you. Their unbelief may be the driver, but it's still them making those decisions. So I don't think we can really separate it this way. Did Jerusalem welcome Jesus when he came into the city? Jerusalem did welcome Jesus when he entered the city on, um, on uh, Hosanna Sunday. But it was only provisionally because they expected him to be crowned king, materially king. For this these same crowd, three days later, was shouting, crucify him. So it was only a provisional welcome. They did not really welcome him as in converting. It took the coming of the Holy Spirit, the action of the apostles, for them to start to convert. And only a portion of them converted, not everybody. So, no, we have to say, and we, we, we take it from St. Paul, from the Acts. St. Paul is very clear when he says they oppose us in every possible way. They prevent us from, from uh, speaking to the bro- uh, brothers. They're after us. And he was one of them. He was sent to do what? Kill the Christians. And Jesus told Saul, Saul. He didn't say unbelief of Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? So it is our actions. And I'm not highlighting this to you know, highlight the actions of the Jews back then. We've done much worse since. My point is that it's our actions as a human being that either love Christ or persecute Him. Have I answered your question? Yes. You're right. Jerusalem is going to be renewed. Christ is going to renew everything. But in that process, this is a bloody and painful process because it involves the curses of the covenant. And those who do not want to be part of that renewal 
those who oppose it, those who re- resist it, are going to see the triggers of the covenant coming down on them. In eternity, Jerusalem on earth was a symbol, a sacrament of that new Jerusalem, the church that is to come down. And that's what happened. That's why for us Catholics, Jerusalem has a very important role to play. It's very important to us, but it's not nearly as important as it would be said to the Protestant or to the Jews. Because the new Jerusalem is here. Yes. No, no, I, 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 no. He didn't say he was done with them. He, I didn't say anything about being done. If I said that, I did not imply the question. So the question was: When Jesus spoke against the, the when cursed the tree and then spoke about the mountain, was he done with Jerusalem or with the Jews? No. And we know that from St. Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8 and 9, where he basically indicates that if the uh, breaking away of the Jews means belief for the Gentiles, what will be the grafting back on the olive tree mean, if not life from the dead? And I had mentioned that to you before. One of the signs that must be accomplished before the end of the world is the conversion of the Jews. The question is, why is it that the... Jews being converted is a sign of the end times. Where they last? Um, I would say that we can take it from the mouth of the Lord himself, speaking to them, when he said, For I tell you, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. That's why. They refused him. They rejected him. And to whom much is given, much is required. And the Jews were the holiest of the whole world. So when they rejected it, they've committed a serious action. But still, God is not going to just reject them. Right? Now the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in the church. That's the fulfillment of the, of the promise to Abraham. Now, any questions dealing with other issues than the particular talk, please leave that to the next section. Right now, I just want to focus on this talk. Yes. The question is, when the fallen star fell and turned the sources of water bitter, what are we referring to here? We're referring to the worship, the pagan worship of gods at sources of water during the time of St. John. I don't think today it is happening much. Even I, I don't know about today, but I think it's mostly back in the time of St. John. That's what it's being referred to. The, the literal meaning is about back then. Today... Any worship of, any pagan worship yields wormwood. I'm going to have to say it like 50 times in a row. Wormwood. (laughs) So, any, any time somebody decides to worship anything but the true God, it will yield a bitter fruit. The question is, is this particular act applied to the end of time? Again, I'll refer you to the four senses of scripture. The first senses of Scripture apply. Whatever applies, literally will apply at the end of time. Absolutely. Because this is a sacrament pointing to what will happen at the end times. Yes. So it happened and it happens throughout. Yeah, it happened in the time of St. John. It happens continually throughout the ages of the church. And it will happen in a more dramatic fashion at the end time. Absolutely. Yes. Very good. So um, we'll see you next week. And God bless you.
We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.